You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Questions. Well, I have questions. Ready? How did we get here? What happened after the Big Bang? What is dark matter? Will dark energy blow the universe apart? These aren't just my ponderings, but some of the biggest puzzlers in all of cosmology and of science, for that matter. Now, new experiments are taking them on, and we're here to give you the definitive answers to those daunting cosmic mysteries. Well, kind of. It's big questions somewhat answered on Big Picture Science. If you were in this studio, you'd see that I've got a bag of chips in my hand here. I'm going to kick another bite. And also uh, crumbling them all over the desk, I see. And if you, if you were here, you'd see that too, the mess. But if you didn't see what I'm doing, at least you've heard it. And so you could bear audio witness at least to what's happened. Which is make a really big mess on the desk. That's a perfectly good bag of chips you're wasting there, Seth. I'm not wasting them. I'm eating them. Okay. Well, after Seth sweeps up the chip mess, as he's doing right now, there won't be much evidence of his messy eating habits. A stray crumb might give him away, and any parent of young children has seized upon just this sort of thing to figure out who was eating what they shouldn't have been eating on the couch. Well, that's right. I mean, sometimes evidence of whatever has happened is pretty darn obvious. You look out at footprints in the snow, you can tell. Were they made by a human or were they made by a deer? Unless, of course, the deer's trying to fool you by wearing size 10 boots. But there are some events that leave only very faint traces, kind of subtle evidence. For example, dogs are sensitive to odor, okay? And they can pick up a scent that you can't see, you can't hear, and yet it might be very good evidence for something that's happened. Thinking bigger now, as part of the trace evidence for the Big Bang electromagnetic radiation. These are once visible light waves emitted in the fiery explosion, and then over time they stretch to become radio waves, invisible, elusive. They are a remnant evidence of the birth of our universe. If we can successfully decipher how these waves are spread across space, we might answer some of the biggest questions about the nature of the cosmos. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak, and welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and what's more wide-angle than a wide-angle telescope aimed at the cosmos. It's out there that we'll find answers to what the universe is made of and how it all began. But the evidence we seek, that's often elusive, difficult to detect, hard to understand. Did you get all the crumbs off your desk? 80% of them. (laughs) But what's riding on this evidence is enormous, such as the questions, what happened after the Big Bang? Did the universe inflate in an instant? A quarter of the universe is made up of dark matter. Just what is that? Ditto for dark energy, which makes up more than half the cosmos, and is that weird stuff that is blowing the universe apart? These are the questions that leave cosmologists scratching their heads. So get ready. We're here to answer the big cosmological questions, somewhat. We can at least get closer to doing that because of a suite of new experiments that are either underway or in the queue, experiments that address all of them. So let's look at those results now, but first... 
Even though we are big picture science, these questions are so heavy duty, so much is riding on the answers that we brought in the big guns. A guru of all things cosmological, straight from the California Institute of Technology, Sean Carroll. Hi, Sean. Hi. Sean, we're going to discuss some cutting-edge scientific experiments here, and we're hoping you'll put them into perspective in terms of what they might tell us, what they might not tell us, and also what it all means. You, you good with that? It's an amazing time to be following these cosmological advances because we're really learning a lot, and it's very exciting to contemplate what we'll be learning next. Well, as we prepare to talk about these experiments, it would seem that this is a very exciting time in cosmology. And is it true that we might be able to answer some of these questions? It's always true that we might be able to answer some of these questions. Uh, as soon as scientists answer questions, they push on to the next interesting questions. We'll never be done answering all the interesting questions, but there's certainly the prospect of answering some big ones. Okay, so it sounds like you're providing a caveat to this program. We might be able to answer all the questions, but you never know. The chances that we're going to run out of big questions to ask are very small. But it's the answers we want. We will get answers, and those will generate more questions. <laughs> and so, Sean, why is it that there are still these questions? What happened immediately after the Big Bang? Uh, what is dark energy and what is dark matter? I mean, it seems that our ignorance of the universe seems to have grown rather than contracted in the past 20 years. Is this progress? Well, it's definitely progress. Sometimes progress is that you realize there were questions you didn't know you should be asking. You know, we can't forget that 100 years ago, we knew essentially nothing correct about the large universe. We didn't know it was expanding. We didn't know there were other galaxies. We didn't know there was a Big Bang. And now we're being persnickety about saying we haven't yet answered all the questions of the Big Bang. I think that's very impatient. We should be uh, very excited that all this new knowledge is coming our way. All right, great. So let's get underway and begin when it all began, or more like an instant afterward. Sean, can you remind us what we do know about the Big Bang? How long ago did it happen? We know that we live in a universe that's expanding. The different galaxies we see on large scales are moving away from us because the space in between us and them is getting bigger. So if you rhyme that movie backwards, in the past everything was closer together and it was about 13.8 billion years ago when everything was on top of everything else. And we call that roughly the time of the Big Bang. It's a little bit of a misnomer because the actual beginning itself is something we don't claim to understand. One second after the beginning, whatever happened at the beginning, one second later, we actually have data about what is going on. It was a hot, smooth, dense, rapidly expanding state. And from that emerged all the structure of galaxies and stars and planets we see in the universe today. All right. Well, then let's go to that. Let's consider an amount of time a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. Uh, maybe we can understand that. Physicists talk about something called inflation at that moment, and yeah, it sounds like something that ought to be in an economics class. What, what is inflation, and why do we need it? You know, it's no coincidence that inflation came around in 1980 when we were struggling with inflation here in the United States. Economic inflation inspired the term cosmological inflation, which is the early universe expanding to beat the band. Basically, every tiny fraction of a second, the universe doubles in size, and then it's a sort of they told two friends and they tell two friends kind of thing. The universe gets very, very big, very, very quickly. We know ways that this could happen. We know physical mechanisms that would cause this inflationary era. And if it happens that way, it tends to smooth everything out and give us, at the end of the day, a universe that looks like ours, a universe that looks very smooth and similar from place to place, one that is expanding very quickly, one that has a tremendous amount of energy packed into a small amount of space. So the incentive to come up with this theory called inflation is that the universe looks the same over in that direction there, but also in that other direction, the opposite direction back there. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. We look back at the relic radiation from the Big Bang, the cosmic microwave background, which is sort of the light that was last scattered off of the early universe, and it looks almost the same in every direction. And that's weird to us because this light comes from the very, very early times in the history of the universe, and the different regions we're looking at didn't have enough time to talk to each other. How did they know they should be in the same physical condition? How would they know to start expanding at the same time? And that's the kind of question that inflation purports to answer. So it's important to know whether inflation really happened or not. It's absolutely central. It would be the most important thing we know about the early universe if we figure out that inflation truly happened. 
okay, there are a few scientific experiments that are addressing the vexing question of whether there was inflation or not. So now we're going to tell the story of two of those, bicep and plank, which sound like elements of an exercise regimen, but of course they're not. Bicep and plank. Those are names of projects that are happening now and have yielded some remarkable results. But as in any story, there is conflict. The evidence for inflation, if it happened, would be found in the thin haze of microwaves left over from the Big Bang, that cosmic background radiation. One project developed to look for it is called BICEP. BICEP stands for Background Imaging of Cosmic Extragalactic Polarization. Jamie Bach works on the BICEP project. I'm an experimental cosmologist at the California Institute of Technology and NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Jamie, where are you? Where, where are you located now? You sound far away. I'm calling to you from the South Pole. And uh, I take it you're not on a cell phone? No, it's a um, satellite link. The BICEP instrument, a specialized ground-based telescope in Antarctica, has been scrutinizing the glow of the Cosmic Microwave Background, or CMB. These are basically the oldest photons in the universe when the universe was 400,000 years old. Now, looking at these baby photos of the cosmos, the CMB, that's not a new idea. This afterglow was found about a half century ago. But these guys are looking for a particular feature of this radiation. It's polarization. What we've been trying to do is measure a signal that's got a kind of a twist to it. It's called a B-mode polarization signal. B-mode polarization signal. Uh, an analogy might be the right and left channels of your stereo. I mean, they're, they're both components of this signal. They're looking for a component of the cosmic microwave background signal. Anyhow, this signature, the B-mode polarization, would, if they found it, be proof of the theory of cosmic inflation, the universe's sudden expansion from something smaller than an atom to the size of a baseball in a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. And they're not the only ones looking for it. My name is Brendan Krill. I'm a cosmologist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. Of course, scientists work in all kinds of conditions. Not all are shivering like Jamie Bach down at the South Pole. I am in a radio booth in sunny Southern California. Where he works on another project investigating the cosmic background radiation, the European Space Agency-led mission with a contribution from NASA called PLANK. PLANK is not an acronym. It's named after the German scientist who first described blackbody radiation. Max PLANK or Planck, some say. And the Planck project is looking for features in that background radiation, the result of ripples in space-time known as gravity waves. Finding gravity waves would be evidence of inflation. Well, the theory of inflation is of really amazing interest because it can explain where all the structure in the universe came from, all the stars and galaxies and, and even ourselves, where we all came from originally back at the time of the Big Bang. You know, inflation postulates that quantum fluctuations on a very small scale were very rapidly blown up to cosmological sizes, and that seeded the structure that we see today. So detecting these gravitational waves from inflation is a really huge deal. It can essentially tell us if the inflationary idea is correct. So Planck and Bicep dedicated themselves to looking for a particular signal, a corkscrew polarization signal. And then in the spring of 2014, Jamie Bach's BICEP2 team had a breakthrough. After reducing the data for several years, we found this twisty polarization signal. Well, this, of course, was very exciting news to all cosmologists and many other physicists as well. The BICEP team published their results in the fall of 2014, saying that it had found a signal due to gravitational waves. But then the Planck team, looking at their own maps of the CMB, had an alternative interpretation of what the BICEP team had seen. BICEP2's measurement of gravitational waves could be contaminated by galactic dust. Dust. Dust between the stars that interacts with the Milky Way's magnetic field to mimic the gravitational wave corkscrew pattern. So you can see interstellar dust with your own eyes. In fact, if you look up at the Milky Way overhead, you can see there's dark lanes in those bright patterns on the sky. And those dark lanes are called dust lanes. They're actually places where clouds of dust are blocking starlight. In other words, BICEP2's results could be due to mistaken identity. Maybe they're not signatures of the blowing up of the universe in that very early moment. 
When we read the BICEP2 paper, we saw they made arguments about why their signal was not likely to be due to dust. But in the Planck maps that we only had access to, we were able to look at those regions of sky and realize that there might be a very dim dust signal there. So this situation, Jamie, in which you've, uh, you know, you spent a couple of years down there using this this telescope at the bottom of the world to try and prove an idea that was worked out on paper and pencil by some cosmologists, the signal that you found, the one that would prove, really, that this inflation, this, this incredibly fast expansion of the universe that occurred so early in the Big Bang, that that might actually, the results may be, if you will, literally clouded by, by fog in our own galaxy, dust hanging between the stars. Is that the worry? That's the possibility, right. Planck actually can't say for sure by itself just how much BICEP2 was contaminated or confused by galactic dust. So the two teams have been working together, sharing data and analysis software and trying to get to the bottom of exactly what they saw. So that's, that's why I'm down here. Whatever that answer is, you know, we know we're going to have to keep working hard here. Fantastic. Well, Jamie Bach, I hope you'll keep your cool down there, and I want to thank you so very much for speaking to us from halfway around the world. Oh, thanks a lot, Seth. It's been great to talk to you. Brendan Krill, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much for this opportunity. It's a really exciting time in our field. Sean, these guys are looking for what's a really small effect, a tiny effect, and that's the polarization of the cosmic microwave background radiation, right? And so, you know, everything they're doing hangs on that little tiny effect, correct? Well, that's right, and it's even worse than that. I mean, the the differences in temperature from place to place in the cosmic background radiation are very small, and the polarization associated with those differences is even smaller. And what they're looking for is a particular subdominant kind of polarization, what is called the B modes in the microwave background polarization. So it's an incredibly tiny thing, and it's an amazing discovery that they were actually able to find them. I think for a lot of people to hear about gravitational waves in the cosmic microwave background, I mean, you know, what are gravitational waves in this context? I mean, what's going on here? Can I understand that in in some simpler term? Yeah, you know, Einstein told us that what gravity is, is that space and time themselves have a curvature, and they have a geometry that can change from place to place. So a gravitational wave is just a ripple in the actual geometry of space. You can imagine space itself expanding and contracting, like breathing in and out, and a ripple that is moving through space at the speed of light. And if inflation happened, then these little ripples in the geometry of space would have shown up as a natural consequence of that inflationary era. So, okay, let's say that they did exist. How does that produce galaxies, planets, and eventually my next door neighbor? What we believe happened, again, none of this is yet completely established, but the inflationary story says that there were two different kinds of perturbations or fluctuations generated during inflation. One was there's a field that was doing the inflating, which we cleverly call the inflaton field because we don't know what it was. That has fluctuations, and those fluctuations grew into the galaxies, the stars, the clusters of galaxies we see today. But in addition to that, there is also the gravitational field. And there are separate fluctuations of the gravitational field. And if you are able to see all of that stuff, then you think that you're on the right track when it comes to understanding inflation. That's why the BICEP claims were so interesting, because we already know that there are fluctuations in density from place to place that give rise to galaxies. Finding the gravity waves would have been the final piece of the puzzle. Well, hang on there while we're now going to turn to a third mission that might just clear up the question of whether or not we found evidence for inflation. It might just clear up the matter of that interstellar dust. And Sean Carroll, you will continue to help us clear up the science as well? Somewhat. It's your big question somewhat answered on Big Picture Science. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. 
All right, so we've heard researchers from these two experiments describing how their projects might answer one of the biggest questions out there, and that is, what is out there? How was the universe created? So can we detect weak gravitational waves from very shortly after the Big Bang that would confirm our ideas about why the universe looks the same in all directions? Well, these are some of the very confounding questions in science that we're tackling in this episode, as well as discussing experiments that may provide answers. And cosmologist Sean Carroll is here to guide us through these exciting developments. Are you ready for the next one, Sean? I'm ready. Okay. I feel like we have him on a quiz show. Well, if that's the case, I'm betting on this particular contestant. I think he's going to walk away with the automobile, the trip to Europe, the whole thing. I'm going to hold you to that. (laughs) Okay, I take it back. But perhaps the question of whether the BICEP team detected gravitational waves or just space dust, as the Planck team has suggested might be the case, needs to be determined by a third party or a third project. And that project might be SPIDER. Suborbital polarimeter for inflation, dust, and the epoch of reionization. Yep, that's SPIDER. But with that name, does it really look like an arachnid or what? When the instrument was originally designed, it had eight telescopes splayed out like spider's legs in all directions, and it actually, after launch, it would lower itself on a thread lower below the balloon. So all of this conveyed the notion of a spider. Uh, None of the things I just said are true now. Instead, we have six telescopes pointing in one direction, and we don't lower from the balloon, but the name has stuck. (laughs) You know, it's too bad they nixed the lowering of the instrument on a thread because that was really cool. However, the goal of the project, it's still quite dramatic. SPIDER is a companion project to BICEP, so it's also tasked with searching for those elusive primordial gravitational waves in the cosmic microwave background, as this Spider-Man will tell us. I'm Jeff Filippini. I'm currently a postdoc at Caltech, just starting as an assistant professor of physics at the University of Illinois. Jeff Filippini is a member of the team working on SPIDER, and in contrast to BICEP, SPIDER will take its measurements while floating above the ground. It was launched from Antarctica in January of 2015, and up there, high in the stratosphere, it has an unblocked view of the cosmic microwave background. In other words, it's designed to check out whether the signal found by BICEP was really gravitational waves or just interstellar dust. So it will observe microwaves in two different wavelengths, and that will allow it to do something that the other two experiments couldn't, namely figure out how much of what was seen was caused by dust and how much was caused by cosmic inflation. Spider is a very ambitious instrument, and it tries to use some of the technology that was used in BICEP2, so these, uh, these advanced superconducting detectors, huge quantities of them to get a lot of sensitivity and try and bring that to a platform, an observing location that's more like Planck's. So we fly on a long duration balloon over Antarctica at a very high altitude, about 120,000 feet, and that approximates space conditions. So that's sort of the point of SPIDER, is to bring this technology to this observing location, to to bring it to space where you can really see it shine. Well, I take it that you're using a balloon rather than putting this on a satellite into orbit, simply because why? The balloon's cheaper? It's cheaper and it's faster. Uh, A satellite requires an enormous amount of money to get into orbit, and so naturally you have very strict requirements on how proven the technology is, and there's a a whole lot of years go into getting a satellite into orbit. Spider has taken, taken several years to get ready, but a lot faster than a satellite would have. Well, one of the problems with the BICEP measurement was the suggestion that its measurements might have been influenced by the dust that hangs between the stars. Now, how is that not going to be a problem for SPIDER? Well, so uh, all of these instruments, if if BICEP2 is contaminated by dust in its observation, then all of these instruments are going to see dust and galactic foregrounds at some level. Uh, spider SPIDER's strategy is designed to help us characterize and look past this dust. So compared to BICEP2, we observe at two frequencies rather than one, and that helps us distinguish the color of what we're seeing, whether it looks like the CMB or it looks like dust. And we also observe more sky. That gives us more of a chance to see how the signal varies across space. Does it vary the way a primordial signature should vary, or does it vary the way galactic emission should vary? So, Jeff, if Spider picks up a gravitational wave signal, actually sees these, you know, twists in the cosmic microwave background, would you be sure that that's the real deal? Because clearly this is a difficult thing to measure. It is difficult. And it's, uh, I'm nervous to say we'll be sure until we see the data. I mean, but we'll, 
we will add something to this discussion and we'll, we'll learn more about what the universe looks like. How long will it take for you to know? I mean, how long does it take to analyze the data? Is this one of those experiments where, you know, you turn it on and a minute later you can say, Eureka? Or is this one of those experiments where you have to spend months, you know, uh, dealing with the data? <laughs> Unfortunately, more like the latter. So in comparison, uh, BICEP2 took three years of observations to get the data set and then a couple of years to analyze that data. We get all of our data in the span of two weeks but we still are going to have to spend a year or more analyzing the data to really get down to the level of understanding we need to look for a primordial signal. Okay, well then, Jeff, let's just say you pick up that signal. You actually see the signature of these gravitational waves imprinted on the background glow of the cosmos, you know, just a fraction of a second after the Big Bang. Uh, you know, when somebody asks you, why does anybody care about this? Why should you spend all this time and some money to do this? I mean, what, what do you say? Do, what is it that it tells us that's so important to know? This kind of measurement is, uh, it's about learning about the beginning of everything, learning about how the universe came to be the way it is. It's a history on the deepest scale imaginable. It's, it doesn't necessarily uh, give you a better iPhone tomorrow or something like that, though some of the technologies we're developing may have practical applications. The, the reason we do it is for the excitement of learning this deep history of the universe, learning the fundamental physics of why things are the way they are. Well, is the champagne already on ice? Although I guess there's not much, <laughs> not much choice in Antarctica. Maybe it's always on ice. It's always on ice, uh, but it'll be a long time before we, before we think about that end of things. Still got a lot of work to do. Jeff Filippini, thank you so very much for talking with me. A pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Jeff Filippini is a postdoc at the California Institute of Technology and is starting as an assistant professor of physics at the University of Illinois. He is a member of the SPIDER team. Well, Sean, will this Spider-Man and his instrument help resolve the ambiguities of the bicep and Planck results? Uh, could it be the one to identify the signal of gravitational waves? It could be. It will almost certainly help. I think that, you know, BICEP2 did a fantastic job, and I think that almost everyone agrees that they found these twisty polarization signatures in the cosmic microwave background. The issue is the interpretation. Is it the primordial universe that gave us those polarizations, or is it the dust in our galaxy? And it's exactly things like SPIDER, as well as other uh, experiments that are up there and working hard, they're going to help us improve our resolution and answer that question. Now, Sean, a lot of this uh, depends on the intricacies, the, the actual details of the experiments, the calibrations, the data processing and all that. I mean, you got to leave that to the experts. The people doing this are expert. But I'm just trying to, if you will, step beyond the experiment itself and look at what it might tell us. Because it seems to me there are really three possibilities here. Maybe Spider will tell us, look, what was measured is just dust. Or that some of the signal is dust, yes, but the rest is inflation signature. And the third possibility is that, well, you can't tell. You can't sort out the dust from whatever else might be there. Now, it sounds to me like the most dramatic result would be that it's all dust and we don't see any evidence of inflation. Could that be a result here? Oh, absolutely. You know, anything is a result. The universe did what it did. <laughs> We're finding out what it did. So there's no sense in which you learn correctly what the universe did and then count that as a failure because it doesn't conform to your favorite theory. Uh, if there's no evidence for inflation whatsoever, that's, that's an important piece of information. Uh, we're not going to get that information from Spider or anything else. We might say that inflation is not as robust and obvious as seemed to be the case from the initial BICEP2 results, but it's still possible inflation happened and is just hiding a little bit. We're still going to have to work harder almost no matter what Spider tells us. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if there was still some ambiguity after these three experiments had come in and the answer was we need to do a little bit more and it'll feel frustrating because every single experiment just tells us a little bit, but then we'll look back 20 years later and we'll have figured it out. So there are some things about the universe that we can put down in indelible ink. You know, water is made of hydrogen and oxygen. <laughs> that's something that's true now. It's going to be true a million years from now. Well, one of the questions, one of the really big questions about cosmology is also one of the simplest. What is the universe made of? And, and we used to think we knew the answer to that. It's stars and planets and rocks and stuff like that. One of the current contenders for uh, being a major part of the universe is something called dark matter, which I believe makes up about a quarter of all the stuff in the universe, Sean. Is that about right? That is right. Okay. So, uh, you know, 
what is it? <laughs> do we have any idea? Do we have any candidates? If it's dark matter, we can't see it, so how do we know what it is? Well, like Einstein told us, everything that exists in the universe creates a gravitational field. So the example I like to use is if the moon were there but it was invisible, we would still know the moon was there because it would give rise to tides here on Earth. The gravitational field of the moon pushes around the water here on the Earth. And the same thing is true with dark matter in the universe. Even if we don't see it, even if it's invisible, it pushes around the other things in the universe. We can see stars and gas and other galaxies. And those things are affected by the existence of this stuff called dark matter. So we know how much dark matter there is. We largely know where it is. We just don't know what it's made of. Well, is it everywhere? Is it in this room right now? We don't know for sure that it's in this room right now, but it probably is. We know for sure that it's in our galaxy, it's in other galaxies, it's in between the galaxies. It makes absolutely the most sense to think that it's truly everywhere, that it's made of particles, and there are probably billions of dark matter particles passing through the room you're in right now. Well, it, it couldn't be in the universe but not be in this room, right? I can't speak to what room you're in or what your house is like, but you know, as a scientist, just telling you the careful truths, it might be that it's not there. Like, for example, a little less facetiously, the dark matter could be the size of snowballs. You know, every dark matter particle could be really, really heavy. And then the density of those particles is just much less, and there might not be one in your room right now. That's very unlikely. We think that the dark matter is probably subatomic, microscopically sized particles, and there's many, many of them, but we don't know for sure. Well, there have been a couple of experiments that have been investigating the nature of dark matter, and one is the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, or the AMS, which has been attached to the International Space Station. And at the end of uh, 2014, scientists who work with the AMS reported that they may have detected uh, the presence of dark matter particles, or at least the effects of dark matter particles. How'd they do that, Sean? If, if dark matter particles are really are dark, I mean, how can anyone detect them? Well, you don't detect, at AMS, you don't detect dark matter particles directly. We do have experiments here on Earth, deep underground, that are literally looking for dark matter particles. What AMS is doing is something called indirect detection, where they're looking for particles from the sky that were created from dark matter particles. So, for example, a dark matter particle and an anti-dark matter particle can annihilate giving rise to high-energy electrons and positrons, anti-electrons, and AMS can actually discover these electrons and positrons. And there was a recent claim out of the experiment that they, they saw more positrons in their detector than they were expecting. Maybe that's because dark matter is annihilating and giving us positrons, but it's also possible that there are just conventional down-to-earth astrophysical explanations as well. That's why we need more explanation. We need a little bit more data to really know for sure. So these uh, positrons and electrons and all these collisions that are occurring, those are not the candidates for dark matter. Those particles are not the candidates for dark matter, but they may be revealing the presence of dark matter? That's right. That's why it's called indirect detection, because we're looking for ordinary particles that we know how to detect, but we're looking for ordinary particles that couldn't be produced in any ordinary way, ordinary particles that had to be produced by dark matter. And just saying that out loud, it's clear that this is a harder project than just looking for the dark matter directly because even when you've discovered something, you don't know the thing you've discovered is dark matter. That's the case with AMS. You've discovered that there is an excess of positrons coming into their telescope. What does that mean? We're not yet sure. You must get a lot of skeptical looks, though, Sean, when you talk about dark matter. I mean, it sounds like something out of science fiction, to be honest. You, know, you can't detect it. You don't really know what it is. How do we know that it exists and it's not just something that physicists have made up? You know, part of my job description is soldiering on in the face of skeptical looks. Uh, that's okay. You should be skeptical. You know, you shouldn't believe things just because anyone tells them to you, including scientists. But the thing about dark matter, the thing about dark energy, inflation, all these crazy sounding ideas that physicists talk about is that we're the most skeptical about them. You know, I would love to come up with an explanation that was better than dark matter for the data that we have. But we have different degrees of belief in all these ideas, dark matter, dark energy, et cetera, because this one or two ideas, they explain an enormous amount of data. Data from galaxies, from clusters of galaxies, from the expansion of the universe, from the microwave background, from gravitational lensing, and over and over again, all the different data from various sources are pointing toward the same thing. Eventually, you say to yourself, that thing is probably there. 
Well, dark matter has its dark doppelganger in weirdness, uh, but its effect seems to be the opposite. Instead of holding the universe together as dark matter does, dark energy, you alluded to it earlier, seems to be blowing it apart. Do you have enough energy to talk about this subject, Sean? Yeah, dark energy and dark matter, you know, together make up 95% of the energy in the universe. So we should be talking about them. We should give them a lot more airtime, frankly. Uh, 70% of the energy in the universe is dark energy, which we think is not a particle at all. I mean, dark matter is kind of prosaic. It's just like atoms or protons or whatever, just that we don't see it. It just doesn't interact very strongly with us. But dark energy is something very, very different. It seems to be spread out uniformly through space. It seems to be not evolving with time. The density of dark energy, the amount of energy per cubic centimeter remains the same from now to the past of the universe and presumably into the future. And what that does is it imparts a perpetual impulse to push the universe apart, to keep its expansion going. So every galaxy that we see is actually accelerating away from us, not just moving away from us at a certain velocity, but tomorrow the velocity will be a little bit larger because of the impact of dark energy. And we're going to hear about an experiment that is going to investigate the force of dark energy and what it might be in just a moment. Cosmologist Sean Carroll is here to talk about a slew of exciting projects that are all taking aim at the biggest questions in cosmology. And we're here to answer those questions somewhat. It's Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. We're tackling the biggest head scratchers in all of cosmology, if not all of science. What's the universe made of? How did it all begin? And we're answering those big questions somewhat. And joining us to help us somewhat answer those questions has been California Institute of Technology cosmologist Sean Carroll. He's reviewing a number of exciting projects that might just bring those answers to us. And he's sharing with us what those experiments can tell us and what they can't and why it matters. So, Sean, ready to tackle dark energy? I am somewhat ready. You've told us a little bit about the properties of dark energy. It sounds like another term which reflects our ignorance rather than our knowledge. Uh, how was it ever found? Well, it was a surprise, actually. Uh, in retrospect, we shouldn't have been surprised, but there were two teams that were using supernovae in very distant galaxies as what we call standard candles. There are certain types of these exploding supernova stars whose brightness we know. We know what it would look like if we were standing next to them. And so by looking at how bright they appear to us in the sky, we can figure out how far away they are. To everyone's surprise, they found that distant galaxies were accelerating away from us rather than being pulled closer together by the force of gravity. And that is a simple, easy explanation in what we call dark energy. I like that it's a simple explanation, and then it raises all these other question marks because there's no simple explanation for what dark energy is. There is. There's a very simple explanation. It's the energy of empty space. Okay. Often when these experiments are discussed, the ones where we're observing supernovae, they're described as type A supernovae. What are those? Well, there's a whole zoo of supernovae, unfortunately. So, in fact, it's type 1A supernovae that are the ones that are standard candles. The ones that we use to discover the acceleration of the universe, we think, are basically white dwarf stars that have a companion. They're binary stars where one of them is a white dwarf. And the companion is dribbling matter onto the surface of the white dwarf. So the white dwarf gets heavier and heavier until it just gives up the ghost. It can't take it anymore. And it collapses under its gravitational pull. The outer layers are flung off. That's the supernova explosion. So we think that this point where the white dwarf star collapses is the same, more or less, for every white dwarf in the universe. So this explosion is more or less predictable in brightness. And it's the use of these standard candles, these things where we know their brightness. I mean, they're like 100-watt bulbs. They all have the same brightness to a good approximation that allows us to know how far away they are, right? That's exactly right. Even though different supernovae have different brightnesses, if you know how long it takes them to decline in brightness, you can figure out exactly how bright 
they actually are. That's how we can tell how far away they are. And the last experiment that we're going to look at has dark energy in its crosshairs. It's set for launch in 2020 or thereabouts. It's the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope, or WFIRST. And it's also called the WFIRST AFTA. As we've heard, dark energy is weird, it's mysterious, and it also makes up about 70% of the mass energy of the universe. So really, we've got to figure out what this stuff is. Neil Garrels hopes to help. He's an astrophysicist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center and a project scientist on this dark energy detector, WFIRST. Neil, we don't even know what dark energy is. How do you begin to learn how it behaves? Well, one of the properties of dark energy is that it exerts a pressure on the universe that makes it fly apart faster. It increases the rate of expansion. That's why we call it the acceleration of the expansion of the universe. And the way to measure that is to look at objects throughout the universe and see how fast they're moving away from us. And you know how the universe works. Because light comes to us at a finite speed, the speed of light, as we look further and further away in the universe, we're seeing objects that were created earlier in time, or at least are emitting the light that we see earlier in time. And so we're able to map out the speed of the expansion of the universe by looking at galaxies at different distances. So if I understand this correctly, this instrument is sort of like, I don't know, looking at the history of speed limits on some freeway by looking back in time and seeing how fast the cars were, were moving 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. You're doing this by looking at, uh, you know, not cars on a freeway, but you're looking at stars very, very far away. Yes, absolutely. And there's two ways of doing this. To look at great distances, we won't look at individual stars, but we'll look at galaxies, which are filled with tens to hundreds of billions of stars. And there's another probe we'll be using, which are supernova explosions. That's more like looking at an individual object, not the star itself, but the exploding star. In fact, dark energy was discovered by looking at supernova explosions and using them to estimate distances in the universe and speeds. A, a lot of people may not realize why you look at supernovae. It's not just because, you know, it's kind of dramatic to see a big star blow up. It's, uh, it's, there's some other reason. I mean, these things are just bright and you can see them far away. Isn't that it? Yes, all supernovae, at least all type 1a supernovae, have the same luminosity. They're the same brightness if you could look at them at the same distance. So by measuring how bright they are, we can estimate the distance to them. All right, so this instrument, this WFIRST instrument, is fundamentally just a telescope. It's a big telescope in space, right? I mean, you know, how does it differ from the kind of telescope I might find here, you know, right in California on a mountaintop? What's new about WFIRST, and this is how it's named also, WFIRST is the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope, is that it has a wide field of view. It sees a lot of the sky at one time. And this business of understanding dark energy is all about statistics. Previous measurements have looked at, you know, millions of galaxies. We want to up the ante and get up to billions of galaxies and thousands of supernovae measured accurately to study this better. So the big advantage of this new instrument is that it will look at more exploding stars or whatever, look at more galaxies, it's just more data, or can it look farther back in time, in other words, deeper into the cosmos? Well, why do this new experiment? I mean, this experiment was done a dozen years ago. It does all of the aspects better. So because of this wide field of view covering a lot more sky, we see more objects, we see more galaxies, we see more supernova explosions. We also are observing in the infrared band. Because objects at greater distance in the universe have their light to us redshifted, it moves toward the red end of the spectrum, you can see further back in the universe by looking in the red and the infrared band. And the third thing we're doing differently and better is that we're making these measurements very precisely with a finely calibrated telescope to do this in a uniform way and produce a data set that's much more accurate. One of the questions you're asking, Neil, is how dark energy has changed, and I presume it has changed, since the Big Bang. I mean, the universe is blowing apart faster and faster every minute that we sit here, uh, but uh, that hasn't always been the case. 
That's exactly right. Our current best estimate from the data we have, but it's not very good in terms of looking at the history of the universe, is that the universe was slowing down for the first eight billion years of its expansion. And only in the last five billion years or so has this dark energy become important and started producing an acceleration. That's one of the puzzles of dark energy. Why did it suddenly turn on five billion years ago? Now, Neil, this instrument clearly can tell us how dark energy has changed, at least in terms of its strength, you know, how fast was it pushing apart the cosmos, I don't know, 10 billion years ago, 3 billion years ago, that sort of thing. But is it going to be able to tell us anything about what the heck dark energy is? We hope to learn what dark energy is by studying all of its properties. In other words, what is it doing to the universe? If you think about it, that's the only information we have about this entity we call dark energy. We have no idea what it is. It could be some kind of new fundamental particle which has very odd properties. Physicists like to say that this particle would have to have negative pressure to actually cause the universe to expand faster instead of slowing it down. Or it could be that Einstein's general relativity theory that describes how gravity works on large scales has a flaw in it. And when you get to huge volumes of space, there's some new factor that comes in. The only way to sort those out is to make the measurements of the expansion of the universe as accurately as you can at all the different distances and times in the universe. So we'll map it out and hope to distinguish between the various theories that people have come up with. All right, well then, suppose dark energy didn't exist. I mean, this was a, a, a big news item. This was a big surprise 10 or 20 years ago. What effect would that have on the universe? I mean, would we still be here if dark energy didn't exist? In our universe, we would be here if dark energy didn't exist. We wouldn't be here if dark energy were a lot stronger. If dark energy didn't exist, the universe would have gone through the first eight billion years of its life like it did, and now we'd be in a phase when it was slowing down more and more. We could predict that eventually it would stop its expansion and would fall back in on itself. The fact that now at this age in the universe, dark energy is dominating and pushing, making an acceleration, means that the universe is flying apart faster. If there was a lot more dark energy, it would have the universe would have flown apart so fast in the beginning that there wasn't time for galaxies and stars to form, and we wouldn't exist in that case. Neil Garrels, thanks so very much for speaking with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Neil Garrels is an astrophysicist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Well, Sean, what do you think of the WFIRST project? I think it's great. I mean, dark energy is something that is still a new shiny toy for physicists and, and astrophysicists. We're trying to learn everything we can about it. We know very little. Interestingly, we, we might know all there is to know. It might be that dark energy is just so simple that there isn't that much to know. We know how much of it there is, and we know that it's not varying very quickly, either through space or through time. It might be that it's not varying at all through space or through time, and then we'll be a little bit stuck. There'll be nothing else to learn. But we don't know whether that's true until something like W first comes along and actually measures it. How fast is the dark energy changing as the universe gets older? Sean, just about every week I get an email from somebody, maybe a phone call, in which they say, look, uh, the aliens are here, and the way they got here was by using dark energy to propel themselves through space, usually faster than the speed of light. Does that make any sense? Well, it's great. It's replaced quantum mechanics as the thing that you should say if you want people to think that you, uh, you're scientifically uh, sophisticated. No, it does not make any sense. I mean, dark energy is kind of the most useless possible propulsion source in the universe. It is the same amount of energy everywhere. Uh, it's sort of like if you had any fuel, the dark energy would be what you had after you burned all your fuel. It's the remnant stuff that is of absolutely no use to you if you want to get from one place to another. So it's sort of like trying to run a submarine on the heat of the ocean. Exactly right. It's the, it's the energy that cannot possibly be used for any useful purpose. What about the possibility that dark energy could get stronger with time? That sounds like it could be uh, the death knell for the universe. 
Yeah, we think that the dark energy is approximately constant, which means either that it's really constant or it's fading away slowly or it's actually growing bigger and bigger. I think that's the order of likelihood right there. It's probably just constant. Maybe it's fading away slowly. The chances that it's actually growing, that means that in every cubic centimeter of space, there's more and more energy as time goes on. That seems very crazy to us just on the face of it, and when you go into the equations, it looks even crazier than that. I wish I had more and more energy as the day went on. That would be nice, but if it were dark energy, it wouldn't help you because it would be everywhere at the same time. Well, if dark energy is getting stronger, could it eventually just tear the universe apart? It could, but remember, that's very, very unlikely. <laughs> okay, so I don't need to sweat it out this week or this year. It's not the kind of thing that makes you rebalance your stock portfolio. <laughs> well, Sean, no one foresaw dark energy. It makes us wonder, could there be other major surprises, big questions out there? Oh, of course. I mean, the chances that we're going to be surprised again approach 100%, I would say. We should distinguish between things we have figured out, Water is made of hydrogen and oxygen. We're not going to unfigure that out. We haven't made a mistake there. But there, then there are also things that we think are likely to be true but could just be wrong about. You know, we think inflation happened in the early universe. We think that dark matter is a particle. You know, there's lots of things that we think that could be very, very wrong. So that's why we need to do these experiments. Like Neil was saying, we really need to train our technology on the universe to narrow these down and separate out the good but wrong ideas from the ones that are on the right track. Sean Carroll is a cosmologist at the California Institute of Technology. Sean, thank you for joining us in this hour. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks to a production team who solves all our puzzles, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where we investigate the nature and prevalence of life. And a big thanks to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to big questions, somewhat answered. If you have more questions you'd like us to answer, partially or fully, we invite you to peruse episodes on our Big Picture Science archive. It's online on our website, bigpicturescience.org. If you're a podcast listener, but you prefer to substitute that for over-the-air radio, because if radio is good enough for the cosmic microwave background, it's good enough for you, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. And if you have a comment, a criticism, maybe a suggestion, throw in a bit of praise and then email it all to bigpicturescience at SETI.org. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.